Our New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The word of God for the people of God. Amos chapter 5, verse 24, is one of the most frequently quoted scripture passages, alongside perhaps, I think, three other passages, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, and these other two tend to be at occasions. The first is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, and it is often used in graduation ceremonies. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, which is sometimes, if not often used, in wedding celebrations. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. And as that passage continues in 1 Corinthians 13, sometimes you can hear the sniffles and the tears are coming, and it ends in verse 8a, typically at weddings, love never fails. In addition to those three verses, John 3, 16, Jeremiah 29, 11, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, I believe Amos chapter 5, verse 24 is a scripture that many preachers and public figures have used in sermons and other types of addresses. Is there... Sorry, everyone. I'm just, oh, there we go. So there's, thank you to the tech team. So five years ago, 29 million people in the United States and over 2 billion people worldwide viewed the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. It happened on May 19, 2018. The presiding bishop from the United States, Michael Curry, cited Amos chapter 5, verse 24, as he officiated the wedding at Windsor Castle, when he shared about the power of redemptive love and its potential to change the world. Bishop Curry invited the royal couple, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, along with billions watching on televisions, computers, tablets, and smartphones all over the world to imagine what homes and families and neighborhoods and communities can look like when love is the way. Quote, when love is the way, then no child will go to bed hungry in this world again. When love is the way, we will let justice roll down like a mighty stream and righteousness like an ever-flowing brook. When love is the way, poverty will become history. When love is the way, the earth will be a sanctuary, end quote. Because Bishop Curry understood that morning that he was preaching to two audiences, the 600 or so persons at the wedding in Windsor Castle, some of whom we've later learned in memoirs and Netflix documentaries were perhaps not that happy to be there that morning, <laughs> uh, and billions more watching all over the world. 55 years before Bishop Michael Curry in the summer of 1963, a then 34-year-old black Baptist minister from Atlanta also referred to Amos chapter 5, verse 24, 
the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. evoked the verse in his address to over 200,000 people during the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. As he stood in front of the Lincoln Memorial, Dr. King challenged all Americans to remember the promises of equality and freedom that then U.S. President Abraham Lincoln had ushered in with the Emancipation Proclamation. 100 years had passed, but according to Dr. King, African Americans remained, quote, crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination, end quote. Dr. King implored his fellow citizens, therefore, to acknowledge these injustices and to enact changes to end them. He noted that critics often asked what it would take for him and his colleagues in the civil rights movement to be satisfied. What will it take, Martin, for you to be satisfied? Haven't we done enough? Haven't we listened enough? Haven't we tolerated your dissent enough? Dr. King responded that they would not relent until African-Americans had equal access to voting, education, employment, and public facilities. Dr. King concluded this part of the address, quote, no, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls, at, rolls down like waters and righteousness like a never-flowing stream. Just as Dr. King was speaking to two audiences, the 200 or so thousand marchers with him in Washington, D.C., and the larger American public, the message of Amos chapter 5 is meant both for its immediate hearers, likely worshiping in a temple in Bethel, and the wider inhabitants across the northern kingdom in the 8th century BCE. Amos chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that he was a shepherd who ministered from roughly 783 to 742 BCE during the days of King Uzziah of Judah and King Jeroboam in Israel. The reigns of Jeroboam, Jeroboam and Uzziah marked an era of flourishing. Life was good for some, as these regions enjoyed security and prosperity. Israelites lived in a milieu of robust public worship with elaborate rituals and extravagant festivals. They anticipated and celebrated the day of the Lord as the ultimate moment when God would grant them victory over all of their enemies. This phrase, day of the Lord, only occurs in prophetic texts, and its appearance in Amos is likely the earliest reference. Amos chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, is therefore, in fact, an utterly staggering message that catches the immediate audience off guard. Amos reverses expectations and warns that the day of the Lord will not be a celebratory moment, but it will be a calamitous reckoning because these worshipers will have to account for their sins of the economic exploitation of small farmers, Amos chapter 5, verse 11, and callous disregard of the impoverished, Amos chapter 5, verse 12. As we heard a little while ago, Amos compares the day of the Lord to two frightening but somewhat funny hypothetical situations. If the young children were here, perhaps this is how we could explain it. Imagine someone is running away from a lion only to be met by a bear. What a bummer. Or someone is running away now from the lion and the bear to find refuge in a house. Person catches their breath, rests their hand on the wall, the mantle of the door, and is bitten by a snake. Again, what a bummer. 
<laughs> and the wider audience of Israel as they're hearing this, the lion, the bear, the snake, they are perhaps invited, perhaps more likely confronted to grapple with God's searing indictments in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 to 24. Amos observes that too many Israelites are practicing insincere and incomplete religion that disconnects civic morality from public worship. In Amos chapter 5, verse 21, the use of two different Hebrew verbs, to hate, sane, and to despise, ma'as, underscores God's fierce displeasure with hollow and outward piety. In verses 21 to 23, God rejects seven aspects of public worship, from material offerings to melodious songs. The use of the number seven is not a coincidence. In fact, it is employed in Scripture often to symbolize completion. In Genesis chapter 2, seven days. In Leviticus chapter 25, the seventh year is the Sabbath year. Revelations chapter 8, there are seven apocalyptic seals. And thus here, the use of God hating and despising seven different acts of worship signifies the totality of God's anger and God's denunciation of Israel's failure to connect their public worship with their daily ethics. In more contemporary parlance, I can think of two words that evoke God's holy anger. Roughly 10 years ago, the actors and comedians Amy Poehler and Seth Meyers were co-hosts of Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live. They often did a segment called Really with Seth and Amy, in which they incredulously offered commentary on current events with the sarcastic use of the word really. They reunited recently on Seth Meyers' late night talk show to remark on the emerging big business of space travel with Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Elon Musk, and others. Seth began, really billionaires, this is what you're going to do with the unprecedented fortunes and influence, race to outer space. Amy continued, you know who's not going out to space? Any woman. Really? Yeah, we're staying down here because we have to fix all the things. <laughs> In addition to really, perhaps another even more contemporary word is this one, bruh. Any parent of a tween or a teen has likely received this word either audibly or in a text message from their child. The best way this parent can explain the word bruh is that it is a young person's synonym of really. <laughs> bruh, my teacher assigned me three free response essays this week, bruh. <laughs> or bruh, the internet went out at my house for like two hours yesterday, and I was so bored, bruh. <laughs> or for my kids, just bruh, I'm hungry. <laughs> Returning to the ancient Near Eastern context of Amos, Christians today need not interpret God's fury as a once-for-all condemnation of congregational or corporate worship. One common theme across the prophetic literature is God's desire for faithful living alongside faithful worship. In Isaiah chapter 1, learn to do what is right, seek justice, defend the oppressed. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Micah 6, 8, 
Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Therefore, in Amos chapter 5, verse 24, justice and righteousness are not presented as alternatives to replace festivals and worship services. It is not that God is displeased when the people of God come together to sing about God's greatness, to sing about God's wonder, to sing about God's love, to sing about God's power, to sing about God's magnificence, as we are doing this morning. But God certainly is displeased when the worship, the greatness, the goodness, the love, the mercy, the kindness, that it all stops at 11.15 when we depart from this place. Then God is displeased. Then God is saying, people, what was that all for? Why are we singing about the greatness of God if we are not taking that greatness and taking that goodness out into the streets, out into our homes and out into our families, out into our neighborhoods and out into our communities? This is the challenge. So really what I find in Amos chapter 5 is God's really, or God's bruh, is a call for the people of God to increase, not decrease their worship, but increase their attention to what is happening outside of their place of worship and actively work toward reforming social inequities and injustices. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, last time I checked, aren't we commanded to seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness? I don't think it says seek second or seek third or seek fourth or seek fifth or seek when you have room in your Google calendar to seek the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. Hmm. Scrolling through my phone. Hmm. I think I can do that next Tuesday hmm, at 3 o'clock p.m. I can seek God and God's righteousness, but I have a hard stop or I have a hard out at 3.30. <laughs> Amos chapter 5, verse 24, employs vivid yet familiar agrarian imagery for an ancient Near Eastern audience. It makes sense to them right away. Rushing rivers and surging streams to capture the vitality and the necessity of justice and righteousness. These images of water are simultaneously breathtaking and life-giving for farmers responsible for tending fields and growing crops. Perhaps today, more comprehensible metaphors for us are to let justice flow like an internet speed of 500 megabits per second, <laughs> and righteousness be as abundant as electric vehicle charging stations in the great state of Florida. <laughs> California, too. But the message is the same. The worshipers of God are being confronted the sacred songs that you sing, they must, not maybe, but they must lead to defending the oppressed, to caring for the earth, and working to construct a better world for all to flourish. As Christians, the entirety of Scripture teaches us that we do not seek justice and righteousness to earn God's salvation. Rather, we do so as the grateful response to the gift of salvation given to us through Jesus Christ. We are taught that it is by grace we have been saved through faith, and we are God's peacemakers, and we are God's children, blessed when we do good, and blessed when we extend mercy to others as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. I remember several years ago I heard 
I've read a news story about Bono giving an address at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. And he shared a story about a conversation he had with a priest. And Bono was sharing how, you know, oftentimes I'm asking God to bless this and to bless that, to bless my spouse, to bless my kids, to bless the band, to bless the work I'm doing. And the priest said, there's perhaps a better way to pray. Rather than asking God to bless the things that you're doing, ask God to help you see and follow the things that we already know God has blessed. To chase after God's blessing, to chase after those things that we know that God has blessed. We know that God blesses justice. We know that God blesses compassion. We know that God blesses righteousness. We know that God blesses when faithful worship inspires and propels us to faithful living in our everyday life. Yet here are the challenges in Amos chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 5 remind us of the gospel paradox, that God's call is also God's challenge, that God's promises are also God's demands. The gospel brings comfort to the afflicted and affliction to the comfortable. The Puritan prayer from the 17th century, the Valley of Vision, begins with the proclamation that our Lord Jesus is simultaneously high and holy as well as meek and lowly and invites God's children to learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, because not the mountain, but the valley is the place of vision. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, we are called and challenged to hunger and thirst for righteousness. In the Psalms, the word thirst is used at least twice in Psalm 42 and Psalm 63 to describe how the human soul seeks after God. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for the living God. O God, you are my God. I thirst for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Jesus teaches the large crowd before him in Matthew chapter 5 and us today to hunger and to thirst for righteousness with the same pangs we feel when our stomachs are empty and our mouths are dry. For me as a seminary professor, it is really challenging because oftentimes the verbs that I use to my students are to learn and to read. Whereas here, there are more primal verbs, to hunger and to thirst. When I think about it, sometimes when I have to read something, it's like, oh, I have to read that. And I think especially my students feel that too when they look through my syllabus. But here it's, you know, when I'm hungry, the immediate thought to my mind and the immediate move in my body is, I better find something to eat. When I am thirsty, again, the immediate impulse is, I better find something to drink. And this is the call. What would it mean for the people of God to hunger and to thirst for justice and righteousness, that I cannot be satisfied until justice is met and righteousness is fulfilled. Therefore, when God calls us to be a beloved community, God challenges us to drive out the sins and the injustices that prevent the rivers of justice and the streams of righteousness from rolling down. Dr. King's call for racial equality his dream that, quote, one day on the red hills of Georgia, the children of former slaves and the children of former slave owners will be able to sit down together, end quote, is also a challenge for us to confront the histories, legacies, and present-day realities of racial discrimination in our city and in our nation. We must enter into the valleys of individual suffering 
and systemic inequity and ask God to give us eyes to see, minds to discern, and bodies to act. At one level, again, at my seminary, sometimes students ask or they say, more likely, there are some in my congregation or the community of faith where I come from, they're a little bit suspicious that at this seminary, you're going to teach us about liberation theology. And so what I say is, here's how I understand liber liberation theology, with indebtedness to Gustavo Gutierrez, Katie Geneva Cannon, James Cohn, and others. I say, here's the scenario. I have left a bakery with two loaves of bread, and as I am walking home, I see someone who has no loaves of bread and who is hungry. What is God calling me to do in that moment? God is calling me in that moment to give this beloved person one, if not both of my loaves of bread, if I can easily obtain more. But liberation theology and this call in Amos chapter 5 also compels me and God invites me to ask, why does this person not have bread in the first place? And what can I do about that? And that requires, in that moment, it does require individual compassion and charity. I can't too, be too busy, got to get back to my office to work on the other thing. In that moment, got to give that loaf of bread. But in my life, I got to think, what are the unjust systems? What are the unjust structures? What is going on that this person does not have access to daily bread? That perhaps this person does not have access to clean water? That this person does not have access to the dignity of good work? and honorable labor. And what does God want me to do about that? That is what I explain to my students as liberation theology. Give that person a loaf of bread, but God is also challenging me. Why doesn't that person have bread in the first place? And you, you got to do something about that. In 1896, one Presbyterian ruling elder and Sunday school teacher, John Marshall Harlan, he did what he could to answer God's call. When Harlan wasn't at New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., he was at the U.S. Supreme Court, where he served as one, of it, as one of its nine justices. Harlan grew up in a wealthy family of enslavers in Kentucky. He fought for the Union Army in the Civil War and then practiced the law in Louisville until he was appointed the state's attorney general. In 1871, he renounced his previous defense of slavery, supported Reconstruction, and advocated for the civil rights of African Americans. In 1877, at the age of 44, Harlan was appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Harlan took great pride in teaching Bible study every Sunday and regularly turned down invitations to Sunday evening social engagements because of church activities. At a banquet honoring Harland, one of the other justices, David Brewer, teased Harland in a toast by imagining that Harland could only find sweet, sweet sleep every night when he had the Bible in one hand and the Constitution in the other. In his 19th year on the bench, he and his colleagues presided over a case in which an African-American man from New Orleans, Homer Plessy, contested a state law that segregated rail cars on trains. A white judge, John Howard Ferguson, upheld Plessy's arrest and the state law. Plessy's lawyers appealed the case, first to the Supreme Court of Louisiana and then to the US Supreme Court. 
the U.S. Supreme Court also upheld the constitutionality of racial segregation in an almost unanimous decision. The lone dissenter was John Marshall Harlan. Harlan argued in his dissent that the Constitution was colorblind and treats all citizens as equal before the law in respect to civil rights. And though Harlan lost the case in 1896, his dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson became a crucial part of the legal reasoning to end racial segregation in every subsequent case, including Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. His dissent provided precedent for other lawyers and other justices to make their decisions in future cases. Therefore, several scholars, including the Reverend Dr. W William Barber, who now teaches moral theology at Yale Divinity School, they note that Justice Harlan lost the case, but he won history. As the people of God, I believe that we too have a part to play in our nation, in our city, in our community, in our neighborhood, in our church's ongoing struggle for justice and righteousness. Our part may not be as big as John Marshall Harlan, but it is no less important. We too are called, commanded, demanded, promised that when love is the way, we can be a faithful neighbor. When love is the way, we can welcome the stranger. When love is the way, that we can help to heal the brokenhearted. When love is the way, we can undo heavy burdens. When love is the way, we can break every yoke. When love is the way, we can end racial discrimination. When love is the way, we can care for the earth. When love is the way, justice can flow like a rushing river and righteousness like a mighty stream. Thanks be to God. <laughs>